Hey everyone, today's guest is Brett Gurowitz, owner of Epitaph Records and the guitarist and one of the primary songwriters of Los Angeles, California punk rock band, Bad Religion. Together we break down the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the single, Stranger Than Fiction, taken from their 1994 and 8th full-length album of the same name. From the moment I heard this song, it was an instant favorite of mine. Not just from Bad Religion, but an instant favorite song. The imagery detailed within the lyrics has always been fascinating to me, but to hear Brett break it down line by line was a real treat. Talk about a whirlwind of emotions. I already knew what the song meant to me on a personal level, but now I feel as if I'm hearing the song all over again for the first time. I was surprised to hear that Brett composed the song on a piano and that he always writes songs the same way. The music and melodies come first and the lyrics after that. He found a formula and man does it work. It was refreshing to hear the producer Andy Wallace let the band be themselves. His strength within the project came when he mixed the album, which at almost 30 years later still sounds amazing. And have you ever wondered about a lamppost that can't stop crying or how many angels you can fit upon a match? Well, stick around and find out. This episode is awesome. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Well, hey, Brett, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, Chris? I am fantastic. You know, I was thinking the the last time I saw you was around 20 years ago. Uh, we were in Anaheim, and you took me out to dinner. <laughs> and, and you had, I don't know if you remember this or not, uh, you're, you're good friends with Tom Wally, who was the then president of Warner Brothers Records. And uh, Tom wanted to sign Less Than Jake. And we were out with Bad Religion on the road at that time. Us, Bad Religion, Hot Water Music. It was the process of belief tour. And uh, you had said, hey, let's go out to dinner. I'd like to talk to you about this Warner Brothers thing. And you you kind of convinced me to do it. You said, man, not many bands get a second crack at this. Uh, we had already been on Capitol Records, and uh, it was the you know probably uh, some of the best advice uh, I, I could have gotten at that point. We ended up signing with Warner Brothers, but uh, coming from you, the president and founder of Epitaph Records, it was sound advice, and and I thank you for that. Oh well, my pleasure. You know, I shoot from the hip. I'm old friends with Tom, and I know that he's a good guy. And- he does what he says he's going to do. So, you know, it's probably what I told you back then. Absolutely. You know, and, uh, you know, researching this time period, you know, today we're going to talk about Stranger Than Fiction, the title track from Bad Religion's eighth full length album, uh, which was released on August 30th, 1994. It was your first for Atlantic Records. And this time period going back, you look from Suffer in 1988 that's when I discovered Bad Religion. No Control in 89, Against the Grain in 90, Generator in 92, Recipe for Hate in 93, which was then re-released when you got on Atlantic. I mean, plus you were on the road. You were still touring with the band. You guys were in Europe all over the place doing doing what you do. And I'm just trying to figure out how the heck, plus, plus <laughs> Epitaph Records, okay? The Offspring's starting to just blow up with Smash. A, a year after uh, uh, Strangers in Fiction, you got Rancid with Outcome the Wolves. I mean, you're getting yanked a million ways. And I'm tr- sitting here trying to figure out how you wrote all these songs. For the record, you wrote Eight songs on the album, Incomplete, Stranger Than Fiction, Better Off Dead, Infected, Television, Hooray For Me, Marked, and 21st Century Digital Boy, which had made
made its first appearance on Against the Grain uh, four years prior. And all four of the album singles uh, that I just mentioned in there were written by you. So crazy time. Take us back. Do you remember writing Stranger Than Fiction? Yeah, I, I really do remember it, actually, because... It's one of the very few songs that I've ever written on piano. Wow. So I was uh, living in Studio City at that time with my first wife, Maggie, and my children, Max. I don't think Frida was born yet. So I think I uh, just had my, my first boy, Max, and he must have been a baby. And we had a blue piano in our living room. And I used to just go in there and bang away all the time. So... What I remember is, and this is probably why Stranger Than Fiction is in C major, because I'm not a great piano player, but you know, if you know anything about piano, you can sort of bang away on C major and all the white keys work fine. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it starts in C and it goes, you know, da 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 And it just, you know, it goes sort of, I had my, uh, you know, my, my thumb and my pinky on the, playing the bass and playing uh, uh, my, my right hand on the, my left hand, my right hand is playing the major chords. I just kind of, kind of went down to the left and back up to the right. Da 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 da. And um, I, I came up with that riff, and it was cool. And I tried it on guitar, and it was super fun on guitar. <laughs> so, and it sort of, you know, became a very uh, sort of distinctive bad religion song because usually our songs have power chords, and, mm -hmm. and this one, this one was sort of a single note line was the hook. So yeah, so that, I remember writing that. I was, uh, you know, it was in my first house. Epitaph was uh, starting to blow up. I was a, a young father and uh, we we're starting to have success at Epitaph. You know, no effects were doing well and uh, Rancid were already doing well. Offspring Smash wasn't really out yet. Maybe it was. I don't know. I wonder if I wrote this after Smash blew up. I think maybe. So was this written after the Recipe for Hate tour had ended? Yeah, it would have been written after the Recipe for Hate ended. Yeah, for sure. Because I saw you guys on that tour in Gainesville, Florida. That was the tour you guys did with Green Day. And that would have been in 93. Yeah. Uh, late 90. I saw it was September of 93 and at the Florida Theater in uh, Gainesville, Florida. Uh, so this would have, I, I'm, I guess, maybe top of 94 somewhere in there. You you possibly wrote this. Definitely. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that's uh, all that was happening. Offstream was blowing up. Pennywise was huge. The way I would describe it is I'd say that I was spun. This time in my life, I was going insane in a positive and in positive ways and negative ways, you know, like uh, things were going really well, but also it was almost too much to handle, you know? Well, as I, yeah, as I said at the top, I'm looking at, at what transpired here from suffer on the touring, what was going on with epitaph records. I mean, you were getting dragged in a million directions and I'm just, I marvel at how <laughs> prolific you were during this session with everything that you just talked about and everything we mentioned that, that was going on, how, how many songs you brought to the table for this record. It's incredible. Yeah. I've always been able to write songs. Greg and I always used to bring seven or eight songs for every record, you know, and uh, we didn't spend too much time writing them. We, you know, we'd, we'd usually spend a few months writing them each one, you know, you know, we'd spend three, four months writing our seven or eight songs each. Had you written anything prior to Stranger Than Fiction on piano that was used for Bad Religion or was this the first thing you remember? No, I, I, I used to write a lot on piano. I wrote, uh, you can probably tell the ones that were written by on piano because there's sometimes a little bit more melodic. Like I wrote a song on a recipe called Skyscraper. And I wrote that on piano. 
I'm not sure too many others spring immediately to mind. We, we, had a, we have a, a more recent song uh, from a few records ago called uh, The Fields of Mars, which I wrote on piano. Yeah, sometimes, you know, you just uh, go to a different instrument and, and something different comes out. Yeah, I, I, I'm i not a good piano player, so I write really archaic and different mm-hmm. <laughs> when I'm there. But sometimes I translate it to guitar and it, and it works out real well. I'd also like to note that this was the first album uh, that was produced outside of, of yourselves. Uh, you worked with Andy Wallace on this, who his track record is just insane. Uh, his breakout success was with 1986 with Run DMC and Aerosmith with Walk This Way uh, in conjunction with Rick Rubin. He went on to work with The Cult, Slayer, Prince, Bruce Springsteen, Nirvana, Guns N' Roses, I Could Go On. Uh, how did that uh, happen? Was this, was this at the insistence of Atlantic? No, no, no. No, I mean, when I was still in the band, I never noticed Atlantic insisting on anything. They were they, they let us do whatever we wanted. So I'm a producer and engineer. Uh, that's one of the things I did start out. So during this time, I had a recording studio also. And I, I did all the early Epitaph releases myself, including the Bad Religion ones. But I was a huge fan of Andy Wallace, and he was just coming off some huge records uh, namely, that I thought sounded great. He had just mixed uh, Nirvana Nevermind, which was produced by Butch Vig. One baby to another says I'm lucky to meet you. I don't care what you think this about me. But Andy mixed it. Uh, and he had recently uh, mixed Rage Against the Machines debut album, which was like the best sounding album I'd heard in a long time. So I was just a really uh, big fan of him, and he was sort of the hottest rock mixer in the world right then. And we got on a major label, and I was real curious to see where Bad Religion could go with a major label behind us. And I thought, well, this is an opportunity to get somebody like Andy Wallace. I mean, I just had a little indie punk label. I wouldn't even know how to find, you know, Andy Wallace's phone number, you know, <laughs> prior to getting signed <laughs> to Atlantic. So yeah, so yeah, yeah. So I think that when they started talking to us about producers, I, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I I can tell you that that it was exciting for me to not just be on a major label, but be on a major label and have somebody uh, as legendary as Andy Wallace behind the board. And so I do remember, you know, we were on that uh, Recipe for Hate tour with Green Day. And the idea that somebody had, maybe it was me, was that, hey, let's have Andy mix one of the songs off Recipe for Hate and see what he does with it. If we like the mix then we'll think he gets us and we'll ask him to hire. Oh, we'll ask him to produce us. And so that's what we did. So we were on the tour bus and Andy mixed uh, American Jesus for us and sent it over um, and we liked it. And so we hired him to produce. And if you listen to Bad Religion Christmas songs, they're mostly traditional Christmas songs, but 
But at the end of the record, there's one ironic track, which is uh, the Andy Wallace mix of American Jesus. We've got the American Jesus, fostering national faith. We've got the American Jesus, overwhelming millions every day. When I think of Andy Wallace, I think of his mixing work. I don't really think of him as a producer. Did he bring a lot to the table in terms of a production role? Because as you said, you've been doing this. This is your eighth record. You're a producer in your own right. And I know Greg knows what he's doing. You know, you guys are all competent. Yeah, no, he didn't really change anything. He had some cool creative ideas and he was uh, sort of a, a, a strict taskmaster. You know, he made us play tight. I mean, he made us play well. Uh, and he was a real, um, you know, real professional engineer. So, but no, he didn't, he didn't go in there and say, Hey, make it more green or anything like that. You know, do you uh, recall demoing stranger than fiction? Was there a demo of it? I totally do. You can find those demos with me singing that stuff on YouTube. You know, at the time, I had done a publishing deal personally for my, with EMI. And um, EMI had a writing studio for their writers where you could go in and demo. It was down on Sunset Boulevard in uh, West Hollywood area of Sunset Boulevard. I went in there and their in-house engineer was Ryan Green, who later became like the in-house like punk rock guy for Fat Rex. But Yeah. But Ryan had never done a punk rock recording before that. So that was like the first you know, his first experience recording punk. And I went in there and I said, Hey, I've got some songs. I'm a writer here. He's like, Hey, far out. He's a super cool, nice guy. And he recorded those demos. So floating around somewhere, I don't, you know, the, the stuff we, I demoed out of my songs in there were, uh, I demoed out stranger than fiction. I demoed out infected. I demoed out, uh, marked, um, a bunch of them and Ryan recorded them. And I thought Ryan was really good. So, you know, what was happening was at some point, no effects were doing another record and I couldn't do it. I can't remember why. And Mike asked me if I knew any good engineers. And I said, hey, that guy, Ryan Green at EMI just did my demos for Stranger Than Fiction. You should hire him. And the rest is history. That turned into, you know, Ryan being like the, you know, the king of punk rock recording. He he ended up... uh, you know, working in Mike's studio and making all those legend, yeah. legendary fat records. Would that uh, have been Punk and Drublick? Uh, did Ryan Green do Punk and Drublick? That was in 94. I think yeah. I think so. And that's yeah. that's around that time period where, I mean, how would you have had time to produce anything? I mean, with, yeah, right. That, <laughs> again, that's probably why I couldn't do it. Yeah. So Ryan Green, hold on. Uh, Punk and Drublick, let's see. I'm Googling it on your podcast. That's so. awesome. We're going to leave this in too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okay, Punk and Drublick, all music. Yeah, Brian Green, that's the one, yeah. So that was the one. And that's so, I was writing Stranger Than Fiction with Ryan Green before that record started. 
Well, as I uh, mentioned to you before we started re- recording, you know this. I've been a fan of your band uh, since Suffer. That was, you know, you were one of the first punk rock bands I had heard of from this little uh, suburbia town in, in the middle of nowhere, Florida. And uh, the band, the band changed my life. Love so many of your songs, but this song in particular, I'll never forget. I, I bought the cassette of it in Gainesville, Florida. I was delivering pizzas at the time. Uh, I had a pickup truck, and that cassette it didn't leave for probably six months when I heard this record. That this song in particular, probably my favorite Bad Religion song. I want to jump into the track now. It's two minutes and 20 seconds. Uh, there's a four count click in of the drumsticks that starts the song into that single note walking descending guitar riff that is just killer. It's so catchy. Stereo guitars, bass, and then the drums are doing a double time pattern. Uh, this is all going on for eight bars before we get into verse one. <laughs> Verse one is a double verse, and uh, I'm going to read all these lyrics back to you, Brett, and I'm going to I'm going to have you set these up because I've really always wondered. Uh, I have my own interpretation of this song, but the lyrics are just so killer and so abstract at points. Uh, a febrile, shocking, violent smack, and the children are hoping for a heart attack. Tonight the windows are watching, the streets all conspire, and the lamppost can't stop crying. If I could fly. High above the world, would I see a bunch of living dots spell the word stupidity? Or would I see hungry lover homicides, loving brother suicides, and ollie ollie oxen freeze who pick a side and hide? Amazing. <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> um, I mean, so all of that does, you know, all of that is like, that's a big swath of the song. I, I couldn't say that, that that whole swath could be described, but basically that, that first stanza, a febrile, shocking, violent smack, and the children are hoping for a heart attack. That's describing a, a, a sort of domestic violence. So the, you know, there's children being abused, and they're you know they're hoping their parents will die. Oh my gosh! Basically, what it what it's what it's describing is you know different vignettes of sort of brutal uh, urban life, and then it says, uh, and I think this is the next where it goes into uh, next. It says, if I could fly high above the world, would I see a bunch of living dots spell the word stupidity? And this is sort of introducing the theme of the song, which is asking, does, you know, does life imitate art or does art imitate life? The living dots are people. You know, if you, if you could look down from, a, from the sky and, and see, uh, see humanity, they would look like dots, right? And a bunch of living dots spelling the word stupidity literally is humans becoming literature, which is to say life imitating art. Oscar Wilde said in a famous essay, life imitates art much more than art imitates life. And so the, the song sort of explores that a little bit. 
And there's a lot of literary references in the song. Oh, yeah. And, and, and we're going to get to a lot of them. I, did you recall having this in a notepad in a book filed away, these lyrics, or was it written specifically for the song? Was the music done first, or did it kind of all come together as one, if you remember? Oh, I remember, because I only ever do it one way. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, the music was written first. Then I wrote the, uh, the melody and the, and the words um, after I had the music. Hey, everybody, don't go anywhere. This episode is nowhere near complete. We got lots more with Brett Gerwitz after a few words from our sponsors. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. uh, And right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all. (laughs) And my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love or want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast everybody satan here i know what you're thinking jesus christ satan has a podcast now too no no that's not it but i am here to tell you about a podcast and it's one that's all about my favorite band punchline not the band you expected me to say right you probably figured i'd like slayer or maybe some backwards beatles records or something those are okay but you usually find me rocking out to fan-favorite punchline albums like Action or Lion while I'm torturing dead people for all of eternity. Punchline's podcast is called A Band Called Punchline, and it's super entertaining to listen to this documentary-style look back at the 25 years of my favorite band. Honestly, I'm really feeling like I'm getting to know these guys, and their story is amazing. I'm so ready for them to get down here. I have so many questions. I gotta give them credit for catching on to my whole 37 thing, too. There's a reason why they're my favorite band, and if you listen to their podcast, they might become yours, too. A band called Punchline is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Check it out, and I'll see you all in hell. Now, back to the show. 
with your writing, when you when you put pen to paper, you know, you come up with a lyric like a a, a febrile, shocking, violent smack, and from there, are, are you starting to get in your head what the song's gonna be about, or, or did you go into the song knowing, hey, I want to write about you know domestic violence and different different things? No, I didn't go into it that way. Usually, what I'll do uh, with a song is I'll, I'll I'll start with the music, and then I see how it makes me feel. I mean, I'll usually have a lot of ideas floating around of themes I want to write about. I've really always been interested in philosophy uh, and uh, and uh, uh, epistemology, you know, philosophy of uh, truth and beauty, and uh, always been interested in science. And so those are always been the- those have always been themes in my music. Um, and I think this, you know, I wrote this stuff at a time in my life where shit was just blowing up in my, in my, literally yeah. my, my head was exploding, you know, was in, in both, you know, in terms of my interpersonal relationships in my life, uh, which I'm not going to get into, but at that time, you know, like my personal relationships were, were really intense and complicated. And then my business was blowing up. Uh, and then my band was blowing up and the interpersonal relationships on that side were very complicated. And I was just, and I was doing too many things. I don't know the exact date of this, but I think around this time, I think I actually wrote this one when I was still sober, but I think shortly thereafter, you know, I was literally so spun and highly emotional that I, you know, around this time is when I had a relapse. I had been clean and sober for seven and a half years. Oh, wow. From, you know, from my, uh, my drugs of choice. And Around this time, uh, when I was writing this record, I uh, I had a relapse and uh, um, started uh, you know using narcotics again. So and uh, some of this record was written while I, while I wasn't sober actually. Although the six previous records, I I was I was clean and sober from Suffer through Recipe for Hate. I was uh, I was clean and sober the whole time. So there was a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot going on. Uh, when I was writing this. And I think, it, you know, not just this song, but the whole record. So I think, and I think you can get that when these songs have yeah. a lot of, uh, all the songs on Stranger Than Fiction for me are sort of deeply personal and emotional, much more so than like songs on No Control, which are just sort of angry and political. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not a political record. This is sort of a, a philosophical, romantic, searching record. That's in- incredible. Thank you for for sharing that. That's that's deeply personal. And I I had to uh, look up the word febrile. It's a fever associated with high body temperature. I, I pride just, myself yeah. on <laughs> I pride myself on knowing knowing words. I hadn't heard that word. Yeah, before. it just means feverish. Yeah, fever. Yeah, it just, it just yeah. means like a, it just means feverish. On this double verse one, the stereo guitars are here playing those power chords that you say are very indicative to to most bad religion songs. The bass and drums are joined by a B three organ. And and I wrote in my notes here, Brett that. That organ is just, it's hauntingly beautiful in this song. To me, without it, it wouldn't be the same or have the same feel. Uh, I don't recall prior to this hearing uh, an organ in your music, except for maybe Into the Unknown, that record. Um, There's a killer vocal delay treatment here on Greg's voice, something I had never really heard before on his voice. Uh, On the second half here, if I could fly high above the world, the second uh, part of, of, of the first verse, the B3 seems to get quieter, a little more subdued on the second half on the last line uh, there's a couple guitar pick slides uh, in stereo right and left that, that take us into what I'm calling either pre-chorus one or the refrain what would you call this next part I call it pre-chorus okay that, that, that's pre-chorus great. one <laughs> 
Pre-chorus one, we get the ah, ah, ahs, the, the oohs and ahs, as Bad yeah. Religion uh, always say, O-O-Z-I-N, oohs and, oohs and ahs, which uh, you guys are just, were, were and are famous for. Hey, Ah, 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 the world is scratching at my door. And you get the ah, ah, ahs again with the harmonies on those. My morning papers got the scores, the human interest stories, and the obituary. Oh, yeah. And on the line in the obituary, Greg is by himself. It's very dry in your face vocal. But when the oh, yeah comes in, there's just, again, this really cool delay that, that happens there. Uh, set up these lyrics, and, and uh, I have a couple of questions about the production here. Yeah, so those lyrics are about, uh, again, it was a tumultuous period for me. And um, Epitaph was blowing up. Many of my bands were blowing up. My own band was blowing up. Uh, So, you know, thus the world is scratching at my door. You know, the major labels were trying to buy Epitaph. Atlantic wanted to sign my band. I was conflicted about that, but excited to, you know, but it just felt like the world was scratching at my door. Like I, I was like, I'd been a nobody. And suddenly, you know, the barbarians were at the gate, you know, and uh, everyone wanted in. And so the pre-chorus there is, is, is referencing that. And then uh, the next two lines talk about what, but life is still, you know, life goes on. There's, there's the morning paper, there's the, there's the scores. And that's where the whole song stops and says the obituaries. And it's just, yeah. to put, it's to put it in perspective. Like this is just... This is, uh, you know, life is short and we're all going to die. Man, um, very uh, rarely am I at a loss for words on my own podcast, but I, I just, this song means so much to me. And to hear you talk about this, it's just, I'm uh, total goosebumps right now. I'm just, uh, I'm, ha- I'm having a moment. I, I, I cranked this song up yesterday in my car as loud, as loud as it went. I'm driving down the road. I just wanted to hear it. And, you know, and, and go back to 94 when I first heard it driving around delivering pizzas. And it just, it still sounds so good. I don't hear the B3 here in this pre-chorus unless it's doing buried pads. Do you recall if it was there? We probably pulled it out if you don't hear it. I mean, sometimes that's, you know, that's what you do in mixing is you get rid of things to make other things pop out. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I remember hearing this for the first time. I couldn't believe how massive your band sounded. It's just, uh. it. It, Thank it's, you. Yeah, it's, I mean Andy Wallace is a genius, you know. Ah, oh, yeah, he just killed it on this song, the whole record, but this song in particular. We're now into chorus one. Oh yeah, cockroach naps, rattling traps. How many devils can you fit up on a mansion? Killing us and he killed the Kerouac cat. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Cockroach naps, rattling traps. How many devils can you fit upon a match head? Caring Ossity killed the Kerouac cat. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. I always thought it said curiosity. I never knew till I Googled the lyric Caring Ossity. That's awesome. That's a tribute to Jack Kerouac, who I love, who who just, you know, who made up words. And also, you know, he died too young, I think, because he cared too much. So those are the things I'm, I'm trying to say with that line. What's with cockroach naps, rattling traps? Well, it's a literary reference to Kafka, who wrote The Metamorphosis, about the, the guy who wakes up and finds he's a cockroach. 
<laughs> I'm I'm laughing because Brett, I'm trying to wrap my head around my my my, uh, my weak part as a musician uh, is, is lyrics. It's always been I don't consider myself a lyric. I'm a, a you know uh, melodies and chords, and I'm just trying to wrap my head around trying to put pen to paper myself and come up with something like this. It's just it's so out there, but it's so cool how 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 you put it all together. This chorus is a combination of those single notes, descending guitar riff, and power chords. It kind of goes back and forth. I love on the Caringosity, the B3 comes in with the high notes there. And it's just it's just chilling when that comes in. Very end here, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, the floor tom snare and the bass drum do these eight hits, which lead us right into verse number two. It's awesome. When it goes into verse two, you're riding again on that train that's just that just just killing me. In my alley round the corner, there's a white old man with shoulders and a spirit giving it for crack. He'll never want it back. There's a little kid and his family eating crackers like they give In my alley round the corner, there's a wino with feathered shoulders and a spirit giving head for crack. He'll never want it back. There's a little kid in his family eating crackers like Thanksgiving and a pack of wild desperados scornful of living. Uh, this is only a uh, half of what verse one was. And, and what's going on here? So this is just a uh, redux of verse one. This is sort of uh, creating a vignette of life. Uh, where it's taking a, a cold, hard look at life as it really is, you know, how tough it is out there. There's, uh, you know, the wino with feathered shoulders was just something I saw. It really happened. I, my Epitaph office was uh, in a rough area and there was an alley and there was a, you know, and there were unhoused people. And uh, I think it's probably not politically correct to call them winos anymore, but there was an unhoused man and he had pigeon feathers all over his shoulder and you know I'm, I'm trying to i'm trying to paint with words here the song is about literature and art imitating li uh, life and life imitating art so i'm trying to create uh, paint some pictures with words and you know asking could this wino be an angel or a metaphor for an angel you know depending on your mindset the children eating crackers like thanksgiving it's just painting a picture of of real life without toning it down, you know, kids that are, it's, it's showing desperation, it's showing hardship. It's real talk. It's what it's trying to be. At this point, um, when you're in the studio and you're, and you're cutting this track, what did Andy Wallace bring to this? Did he have any suggestions? Did he say, Hey, we should have a B3 here. Or we should, we should try this. No, no, no. He just, on this one, he just recorded it really well and mixed okay. it really well. Yeah. <laughs> That's really really cool to hear because again and i'm glad you said this earlier it's like no we, we were allowed to be bad religion even though we were on a major yeah we had this major producer but you know this this still would have been the next album that we wrote had it been on epitaph yeah i mean i'll tell you where the b3 idea came from i i um you'll notice you know the beat on this song is sort of like a mod beat you know yeah the, the button 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 it's almost like a motown or like a, yeah me and jay liked a band called the jam who are who are a mod punk band from england um, they they used to like this beat. I think we called it a jam beat, you know, when when we were rehearsing it. And so uh, mod bands would have uh, organ in them. So sort of having this beat and this that organ was sort of bad religion's little way of paying tribute to to that kind of stuff that we love. 
the jam are awesome. Less than Jake actually did a cover of Modern World some years ago. Great band, great song. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, we go into uh, uh, what we're calling pre-chorus two. It's the same lyrics as pre-chorus one, and then we're into chorus two. I love chorus two because it's not the same lyric uh, as chorus one, but it hits just as hard. Obituary. Oh yeah, create a fun cat. Wolf looks back. How many angels can you fit up on a match? I wanna know why Hemingway cracked. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Cradle for a cat. Wolf looks back. How many angels can you fit upon a match? I wanna know why Hemingway cracked. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Right. So more literary references. So um, Cradle for a Cat is a, is a reference to Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, which is Kurt Vonnegut is one of my favorite writers. And uh, Cat's Cradle is one of his great books. And uh, Wolf Looks Back is a literary reference to Thomas Wolfe's book, Look Homeward Angel, which is one of my favorite books um, at that time of my life. It's a very romantic book. Uh, he was a great American author who only wrote uh, two novels, really. Um, it's not to be uh, confused with a, a, another Tom Wolfe who wrote The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, who's another great American author. But Thomas Wolfe was uh, from, um, I think, uh, Asheville, North Carolina, and he came to New York, the big city, and he wrote a semi-autobiographical uh, book, which is just sort of almost like a sprawling lyrical odyssey. Uh, it's like 600 pages, but I was obsessed with it and the sort of the lyricism in his writing and the passion in his writing. So that's a reference to that. And as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll give you another little Easter egg. But in the song Suffer, I say, you know, a unturned stone, an undiscovered door leading to the gift of hope renewed. Their lives are just like yours. And undiscovered The unturned stone and undiscovered door is a re recurring theme in Thomas Wolfe's uh, Look Homeward Angel. That's where that came from also. He, uh, Thomas Wolfe was a big inspiration uh, to me uh, in my lyrics. So there's, uh, there's something I think I've never mentioned in, a, in an interview. I'm trying to figure out how you put this all together, Brett. And I'm, I mean that with the most sincerity I could ever muster up. It's just, <laughs> it's Thank incredible. You. All these references that you're throwing in here and it's blowing my mind. A so now, song you can, that... now you can do a bibliography. You know, nobody's ever asked me about my songs <laughs> in this much depth, but I do put a lot of thought into my, you know, into my lyrics and my, my songs. Obviously. <laughs> um, and then, the, so, um, so how many devils can fit upon a match? You know, I just want to say that that happens twice in the song. This time it says angels. The first time it was devils, right? Oh, the first time it was devils, second time it's angels. The point of that is that it's a reference to an old expression, which is how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It's an old question that's meant to be sort of a, an absurd question that, that has come to mean, um, you know, let's not waste our time talking about nonsense. Um, but it's also... Uh, in the olden days, it was sort of what they called a, a reductio absurdum. In other words, it's sort of a question that leads to an absurd answer. For me, what this is about in the song, is it plays an important part. To me, it's, it's similar to, to the Japanese cone, where 
you ask a question that doesn't really have an answer, but just uh, is sort of confusing, it sort of leads to you having more of an open mind. When you trick the mind into, into sort of turning in on itself, it can sometimes discover something that it never would if it's just thinking logically, you know what I mean? So, hmm. and to me, what that question is saying is sort of, hey, and this is what cones do also, is, is there more to life than meets the eye, right? And in terms of this song, and, you know, as, as, a, as an individual, I think there is. I'm not sure what, I'm not, I don't know what it is. I'm not a religious person. But I do think there's definitely more to life than meets the eye. Because I think human beings are probably very poor virtual reality machines at, at best. You know? <laughs> so, so, so the question is, you know, how many, how many angels can you fit on a match is, is like saying, hey, is there more to life than meets the eye? In the context of this song, it's saying, and if so, can it be expressed through art? Can you capture it in fiction? Does art and human creativity, is it capable of, of telling us something fundamental about the universe? You know, like, a, is there a deep connection between truth and beauty? And, and these are, wow. this is sort of, for me, you know, it's always been a, a really important uh, question and it's something the song is, is um, exploring. And, and so I say, I want to know why Hemingway cracked. And, you know, what is that about? Well, obviously, it's another literary reference. It's Ernest Hemingway, who famously killed himself. But, but he's one of the m most beautiful, you know, artists uh, that the world's ever produced, in my opinion. And so why does a person so obviously uh, gifted and, you know, and, and imbued with truth and beauty end up taking his own life, right? And so that's the sort of the big question in the song. So for me, the song sort of culminates with that line. That's what it, what it comes down to. And I don't know what the answer is, but, but I, think that, I think that sometimes great artists take their own lives. And then maybe it's because they fail to come to grips with these big questions, you know, um, and that, that the thing that makes them great artists in the first place is because they care so much about these big questions. What, you know, what is the deep connection between truth and beauty and what, uh, and what is it all about? You know what I mean? Right. They take, they take it so deeply personal on, on another level that most of us can't even understand. Right. And so that's why those first two verses are just little tableaus of life's brutality, right? Because you're meant to think about the artist looking at life and creating literature or art to understand it. Right. Well, I'm, I'm assuming this was tracked analog. Uh, this is, you know, kind of before Pro Tools. There was some digital editing going on in 94, but uh, I, can, I hear Greg's voice on fiction here. It does this little skip that's not there on the, on the, on the first chorus, and I love that little nuance uh, that happens there. It's stranger than fiction. Yeah, it's all analog, for sure. Yeah, and then we get into the bridge, and the bridge is great. Because here you hear outside of the choruses with the ah, or excuse me, outside of the, the pre-choruses with the ah-ah harmonies, the oohs and ahs, you hear harmonies come in here over the lead vocal, and it's awesome. Life is the crummiest book I ever read. There isn't a hook, just a lot of cheap shots, pictures to shot, and characters and amateur would never be Life is the crummiest book I ever read. There isn't a hook, just a lot of cheap shots, pictures to shock, and characters an amateur 
would never dream <laughs> up. Yeah. That line is yeah. my favorite in the song. That line is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. It's sort of just describing the most cynical view possible of life, which is to say a view of life with no beauty or meaning. Believe me, you know, as a punk rocker, I've I've definitely gone through periods of looking at life that way. And it doesn't and it, it doesn't feel good. And I th and I know a lot of a lot of people struggle with depression and they struggle with their search for meaning. And that's what you know, that's what that that bridge is saying. But I, but I don't want the song to be interpreted as a pessimistic song, because I think what it's also trying to say is that that truth is is stranger than fiction. Right. If you just look at the facts, if you just look at the brutality of life, you know, if you just look at a crocodile eating a gazelle, right, then then life could be thought of as simple, mean brutality, and it could it can make you feel despair. But I think what the song is saying is that another way to, to look at it is through the lens of art and beauty, and that, that you bring your own meaning to life, right? That, that human beings have something called creativity, and we can create music, and we can create poetry, and we can see the we can see a wino in the alley and imagine an angel. And we can imagine that that he has a spirit and that there's something more than, than meets the eye. And so I guess one way to imbue life with meaning is through art, which is to say fiction, right? And right. so that that's the that's the hope in the song. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of bleak imagery in the song, and there's a lot of literary references in the song of people who grappled with the, with the bleak brutality of life. And I do that myself. And I think part of the song is is talking about uh, about my own struggles with that stuff. But I think at the end of the day, it's a hopeful song. I've always felt it's hopeful. And I've always liked that about punk rock, where you can have, you know, sometimes depressing or, or abstract vocals and, it, and it's still uplifting in, in, in some way, which this song is. Uh, again, harmonies on every lyric in the bridge. The bass tone here is just ripping. It almost sounds like the bass gets a dB louder here in this part. It's awesome. Uh, we've always had fun recording the bass in Bad Religion. We do something that uh, is pretty unorthodox. Jay has this old, um, he has an old high watt bulldog combo, right? I don't know if you're familiar with high watt amps, but oh yeah, mm -hmm. and it's not a bass amp, but when you put your bass through that and uh, and crank it up and then and and then come out of it into a four by twelve cabinet, you get this real grindy sound. We just yeah. we discovered that on. Um, for the first time on Suffer, which you can hear that same sound on there. But we think we we either use that same kind of a setup here or we or we try to approximate it with with another, you know, some other kind of a combo. But that's oftentimes that's what we've done with Jay. He doesn't do it live because it's not practical, but in the studio, yeah. that's, that's what we do. No, it's growly. It almost is slightly overdriven. It's got that, uh, you know, little, little bit of fuzz on it. it, it it's awesome. Um, I, I love it. And usually at this point, I've, and I've uh, previewed songs here on the podcast where I look and go, why isn't there a third chorus? And I, I, I think I know why with this song. This song to me is one hook from the top to the bottom of it. It's all one big, big thought and one big chorus to me. There's nothing that really stands out like this is the, the hook that has to happen over and over. I usually like to have three choruses in a song and keep it under two minutes and 30 seconds if possible. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, 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 you know, but there are also, you know, um, you know, it's, it's trendy to, nowadays to hate the Beatles, but I, I don't do that. I, I worship the Beatles. 
And something that the Beatles have done, uh, you know, in, in few other groups have done it, is they'll have songs where you can't tell what the chorus is because every single part sounds like the chorus. It'll be, be a song where, like, you know, it's got an A section, a B section, and a C section, and they all sound like choruses, right? Yeah. And, and presumably one of them's the verse, you know, it's the one that doesn't have the song title in it. But but you know what I'm getting at. And so... Oh, yeah. And so that's sort of what this song, you know, that's what I was going for in this song was just that, you know, it's the intros are very catchy with that lead line. Uh, and then the, the verses are very catchy. And then the, the with the exception of the first double verse, I think you've got like a, an eight bar intro, an eight bar verse, an eight bar pre-chorus, an eight bar chorus, you know? So it's just like section, yeah. section, section. And each one is pretty catchy and each one is very fluid. Definitely catchy and definitely fluid. Coming out of this bridge, the band rocks out for six bars. And on the seventh bar, the descending riff ends on the root note of the song and the organs holding out, fading off to the left. You get the lyric one last time. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Man, I just, uh, you hit me with so much today of a song that I've been listening to for almost 30 years that my mind is just blown right now at the story that, that you painted through your lyrics here. And it's just, uh, it's been been so cool to hear it come from you. I've, like I said, I rarely do I stumble over my words here, but I'm just like, my mind's kind of blown right now with where, <laughs> where, you, where you came from, you know, how this... You put all this together, all these literary references and, and these authors that you admire and, you know, looking out the window and, and, and seeing the, uh, the person in the alley with the wings and, and all the imagery in this song. I always, again, had my own interpretation of what it was. And, and uh, now it's just I'm going to have to listen to the song again tonight to hear it again. I'll give you one more anecdote. I don't think I've ever told Tom this, but, you know, um, uh, Tom Waits, his family, and he's he's been on on the label on my other label for many years. And. He's got a song called that, you know, the piano has been drinking, which is always one of my favorite songs. It's so beautiful and, and heartbreaking. And the spotlight looks like a prison break. Cause the telephone's out of cigarettes. And the balcony's on the make. And the piano has been drinking. The piano has been drinking. He's probably my favorite lyricist. And uh, so I was inspired by him. And that's where the, uh, the lamppost has been, uh, has been crying. That's where that comes from. It's sort of like, uh, you know, the, the imagery of the, of the, you know, the piano has been drinking, which obviously, you know, he's, he's saying that he's been drinking. And, the, you know, the, the lamppost, the lampposts all are crying. It's, you know, it's uh, obviously it's describing it as raining outside. And so it's a pretty way of saying that. But it's also saying I'm crying, you know, um, but but you're too embarrassed to say so, you know. So but th- but that was inspired by Tom. So, so, so good. Uh, I, I can't I can't thank you enough for, for breaking this down with us. And uh, before we wrap here, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with what you got going on with the label, Bad Religion, yourself? Um, no, I, don't, I just want to say thanks to the fans for listening. Uh, thank you for caring so much about my old song. 
Uh, it's, it's been it's been a fun trip down memory lane, like reliving that. I'm excited to go listen to it right now. <laughs> awesome. Well, Brett, thank you so much, man. It means means a lot that you, you took some time to do this with us. This was way more fun than I than I thought it would be. So I I, I thank you, and uh, it's been been really nice. Hey, everybody, we got a lot to talk about with that episode, so don't go anywhere. We got lots more Krista Makes a Podcast after a few words from our sponsors. Hey, this is Chris Santos, host of Delirious Nomads, the Blacklight Media Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Delirious Nomads is a podcast about all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports. And me being a chef and all, we'll be riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. What's up, everybody? I'm Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got the podcast for you. It's called Drinks with Johnny, where I sit down with some of my contemporaries in the music industry, like Robert Trujillo, Metallica, Shavo Dijian of System of a Down, so many more punk rock legends like Fat Mike and Jay Bentley, and all their people of all different walks of life. I get to sit down and give you perspective and an inside look into their lives. So go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere you get your podcasts right now. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and bio to ban you might not know at gmail.com. This week's feature artist is Arizona-based Fayuka, taking influence from Brit reggae, modern reggaeton, and heavy dub sounds, and combining that together with a flair all their own. You can find their music on all the streaming platforms. Here's a snippet of their brand new single, High Off Your Love. At the end of a long summer night, all I need is you, all I need is you. Chris and Chris. Chris, it's crazy when you told me that Brett agreed to do the show. The first thing I thought of is, man, let's do Stranger Than Fiction. And before I could get those words out of my mouth, you said, we got to do Stranger Than Fiction. You and I both have the same exact favorite Bad Religion song. And I'm going to go a step further, Chris. Stranger Than Fiction might be my favorite punk rock song ever. It's a, and if it's not, it's top three. If it wasn't before I talked to Brett, it is now. Uh, I can't believe where he got inspiration for these lyrics. I mean, think of the the imagery in this song is insane, and all of the all of the influences, the inspiration, and where he pulled from. There was just I, I, my head is spinning. It's 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 uh, it's a masterpiece. This song. You know what makes my head spin that I never thought about before, and you said it early in the episode, and I'm like. What? When you said this song is two minutes and 20 seconds <laughs> yeah. long, so much happens in this song. I was like, that yeah. can't be right. He has to mean like 320, right? <laughs> but no, this there are so many lyrics. This is, <laughs> I thought maybe you would bring this up, but I put this song kind of in the same category, at least musically, melodically, lyric, lyric delivery wise of... It's the end of the world as we know it, and we didn't start the fire where there's so many lyrics that when you know those lyrics, it's impressive. And I've had those moments in my life where, 
you know, having some drinks with friends, partying, or maybe someone has a mic set up and this song came on and everyone around me all singing every word to this song and then finishing being like, wow, we all knew all the words to that. You know, it's impressive. Yeah. And those are two great examples you brought up, End of the World and Start the Fire, that just have so much imagery and so much lyrics crammed in. And this definitely, I think, falls in that category. Uh, I mentioned near the end of the episode that it didn't need a third chorus. This whole song's a chorus. Right. This whole song is catchy from the time that it starts until the end the combination of uh having andy wallace whatever he did with this uh i remember getting this record in in 94 and just being blown away the band it was still bad religion but it just had that extra bit of heaviness to it that uh what andy wallace brought to the mix it's awesome i remember when this album came out i had seen infected on 120 minutes and i was young you know as a young punk and i remember that since this was like the new Bad Religion album, that you kind of felt like, oh, the the new Bad Religion album, that's not cool. You don't, you gotta listen to the old stuff. But now you can look at Bad Religion's whole career and be like, in my opinion, it's the best Bad Religion album. It's a, it's incredible, you know, from start to finish. I love every song on that album. Oh, I don't. I I'm kind of at a loss for words about this episode. That was great. yeah. I, I told Brett I was kind of fumbling over my words. There's a, there was a bit of fanboy going on today. I've always admired yeah. uh, admired Brett. I'll never forget the time that uh, he took me out to dinner that night on that on the tour we did together. And uh, and I'm listening to this man who I admire who runs the biggest independent record label that there ever was. And uh, yeah. he's just a, a wealth of information. Such such an interesting guy. But, you know, I remember getting Recipe for Hate, the, the record uh, just prior to Stranger Than Fiction. And that record wasn't immediate to me. I, I, I grew to love it. It's one of my favorite Bad Religion records. But, uh, it, you know, I, I had to warm up to it, which I to this day, a lot of bands, I'll have to you know listen to a song a couple times. Then I get it. Then it hits me. The very first time I heard the, the song Stranger Than Fiction, I loved it immediately. I must have listened to it 30 times in a row. I remember just rewinding that cassette. Chris, I think you and I listen to music kind of similarly in that it's the music and the way the music makes you feel and not so much analyzing the lyrics. I know every word of this and I've attributed my own meaning to them, just as you kind of mentioned that in the episode, but I have never to this day like dug into what individual lines meant or like researched it. I'm sure we could find some stuff on the internet, but when I'm hearing him talk about it, I'm like, yeah, of course these are all literary references. The song is called Stranger Than Fiction. Of course. <laughs> You're talking about, you know, such an intelligent lyricist and bad religion are so known for their lyrics. Of course, this is, you know, literary reference after literary reference. Yeah, and I don't know why. And I, I, I would be just so stoked to hear someone like Alanis Morissette or Tori Amos just a piano and a vocal with this song when Brett said he recorded on a piano I could hear this slowed down it would be haunting and speaking of haunting you know we talked about it a little bit but this song just would not be the same without that B3 and it was the first time I remember hearing I had mentioned you know they had kind of a weird record in their career uh, in 1983 it was called Into the Unknown and it was just this weird kind of new wave keyboard record they they made and they're not very proud of it but I actually like a lot of songs on that album but, but this was the first song that had like you know uh an organ in it and it just uh it did something to, to, to this song to me it, it it uh music gives you a feeling and without that organ that same feeling wouldn't be there i couldn't believe he said he wrote the song on piano <laughs> i thought that was so cool yeah. there's a lot of things he said in this episode that i'm always going to think about but he talked about 
the theme of the song being grappling with the brutality of life. But at the end of the day, it's still a hopeful song. And to know, like he said in the episode, that he himself at this point in his life, things were so crazy that he was he was wrestling with a lot of things. He was struggling with a lot of things. This came out of him at that point in his life. I mean, that makes the song even, I don't know, more meaningful, you know? Oh, I know. I mean, you know, he he's he's on a running the, arguably the biggest uh, punk rock label in the world. His band, as he said, is blowing up. The Offspring's blowing up. Uh, the, you know, this was their eighth album. He's got uh, s- small children at home. He's married. All these things going on. He's dealing with interpersonal issues. You know, he had relapsed during this record, and uh, he was he was pretty raw in explaining all that. And I can't even imagine uh, how many different ways he, he was getting tugged when, when this was going on, but... But yeah, this uh, this song is is up there for me. I'd say after after talking today, it's probably my my favorite punk rock song. If someone were to ask me, I would I would list this as uh, as the one. Just going back real quick to it being a hopeful song. The the music, the melodies are so uplifting that it overpowers the fact that he's he you know he calls them little vignettes that are all really sad things that happen within this song. Chris, I would agree also. That bridge, the end of that bridge, that lyric, that's the one that lives rent free in my brain, you know? Yeah, and and characters an amateur would never dream up that line and the lamppost that can't stop crying. I've always wondered what that meant. And when he was explaining to me, I was having a moment. I was kind of out of my mind this episode, Uh, admittingly, um, one of my favorite bands. And to hear him talk about this song uh, in depth, how he did and, and just you know, be as raw as he was and open about it was really, really, really cool. Dude, the picture that he paints in the first verse, the bunch of living dots spelling the word stupidity. I knew what he meant by that. It's like zoom back away from earth. And I just picture those little dots of people spelling that out. It's so, so visual. That is the definition of amazing imagery. I mean, that's one of the, I mean, I could go through every line of this song and talk about how awesome it is, but man, we're really ranting and raving about, (laughs) about this song, but it's just from the heart. I mean it. I know. I'll tell you something else. that's awesome, Chris. What's that? That would be our supporting cast VIP that we'd love for you to join. Go to ChrisDemakes.com. You can be part of our group where we give you bonus episodes each week of the show that you love. Uh, And yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Join us. Dude, I mean, (laughs) we could have just do a whole bonus episode of us just continuing to talk specifically about the song Stranger Than Fiction. I feel like I could talk about this song. I want to read every book that I haven't read that he referenced in this episode. Now, I, you know, I wanted to let him go, but I wanted to talk to him about a couple books. I'm like, Chris, don't do it. Let the guy get, let the guy get on with his day. But uh, I hope... I hope someday I get to do that. We can talk. Uh, we can talk about it in our bonus episodes with the after party. We can talk about sure. it for as many episodes as we want. So again, <laughs> please join us. Go to KristaMakes.com and sign up. It's uh, for the price of a cup of coffee or, or buying Chris and I a beer a month. You can join and, and be a part of it. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group, the Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group. It's a lot of fun. And give me a follow on Instagram at less than Christy. Want to thank this week's guest, Mr. Brett Gurwitz, for sitting with us, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everybody. If you like Krista Makes a Podcast, I'm going to assume that you like music podcasts. And if you like music podcasts, check out One Hit Thunder. Each week, we dive into a one-hit wonder, and along the way, we gain some knowledge and have some laughs. Lou Bega, Crazy Town, Harvey Danger, The New Radicals, Aha. 
We're over 100 episodes in now, and to paraphrase the great Matthew Wilder, nothing's going to break our stride. Subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Hey, this is Scott from Fly in the Call. Each week I speak to a different musician, whether they're in an established band like Silverstein or The Wonder Years, or a band on the rise like Spanish Love Songs, Origami Angel, or Meet Me at the Altar. We discuss music and lyrics, the successes and challenges of being in a band, and more, as we get to the core of each artist. The show features musicians of diverse genres and backgrounds, so there's always a chance I'll be talking to your new favorite band. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.